0: Birth and suffering are deeply linked concepts in Buddhism, and their connection has shaped how the bodies and status of women were understood. Join us today for a conversation with Amy Paris Langenberg on her book, Birth in Buddhism, The Suffering Fetus and Female Freedom, published by Rutledge in their series, Critical Studies in Buddhism. Amy takes as her focus the Garbo Sutra or Descent of the Embryo Scripture, a text from the early first millennium. Using this work as her point of departure and reading across a wide range of genres, Amy explores birth metaphors, the journey of the fetus, and the concepts of purity, auspiciousness, and disgust, showing how the Buddhist depiction of female bodies operated against a backdrop of earlier South Asian ideas. The Descent of the Embryo Scripture speaks to the human condition, but especially to the status of women, fertility, the female body, and mothers. Amy argues that this Buddhist depiction of women's bodies as disgusting and impure opened the way for new female roles. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies. I'm Natasha Heller, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Amy Paris Langenberg about her new book, Birth in Buddhism, The Suffering Fetus and Female Freedom. Amy, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here.
0: It's great to have you. Um, I'm wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in Buddhism.
1: Sure. Yeah. So it's sort of lost a little bit in the mists of history, but uh, I I got I really got first interested in India, not really Buddhism per se, but really uh, India. Uh, as a college student, I participated in the college year in India program, which is kind of a kind of famous program. I was in Varanasi, Benares as a student and I didn't study Buddhism. I studied uh, Hindi and I studied Kathak dance, believe it or not. And um, I did some field work actually on traditional midwifery. There's a bit of a through line there, I think. Uh, and you know, I spent some time in some of the Tibetan areas of India, Manali and Dharamsala. Uh, and so I kind of cross paths with things Tibetan and things Buddhist. But you know, I was really, I was really a Benares gal. I was um, very uh, fascinated by the interpenetrating religious worlds of Benares. Um, so then I, I did actually end up going back to India after college and uh, on a undergraduate fellowship to study traditional medicine, in particular Tibetan medicine. So I gotten a little closer to Buddhism at that point, And I did spend more time in the Tibetan areas and, um, cross paths quite a bit actually with, uh, the Dalai Lama as, <laughs> as it would happen. Um, including actually went to one of the early Kalachakra initiations in Bodh Gaya when it was still actually a kind of dusty sleepy town. Uh, so I got, I got, you know, a little bit closer to Buddhism. Uh, but I was still really mainly interested in the religious worlds of India. So, um, and I think that's probably, that beginning probably explains some of my insistence on treating Buddhism really as an Indian religion. And, you know, I'm really most interested in Buddhism in its South Asian context and looking how it's, its, um, you know, how it's really embedded in this really complex religious um, environment. So... So that's how I started. I did eventually end up in a religion PhD program at Columbia with a focus on Buddhism. And my advisor was Robert Thurman. And uh, of course, his major focus is Tibet. But even then, I remember coming in and sort of on day one saying to him, but, you know, I want to study India. Um, and he was, you know, he was fine with that. He said, oh, that's fine. And um, I remember really vividly, actually, he he made this gesture of sort of placing something on his head and a gesture of respect, you know, the way you'd sort of place an image on your head and touch your forehead to it. He did that. So he was kind of miming how the Tibetans revere India. Um, But, you know, Bob, I think was really, he's really interested in India, but he really is um, someone who reads Tibetan texts and is really immersed in the Tibetan world. So um, I kind of uh, found my way to Sanskrit Buddhism on my own, um, sort of in that, in that context in uh, Colombia, um, But I think um, I've gotten more and more attentive to the larger Buddhist world as I've especially moved out of my dissertation work, which is you know quite a few years ago now, and um, especially spending time in the classroom with undergraduates. So I've become really increasingly interested in other Buddhist worlds. Uh, especially all of the sort of many faces of Buddhist monasticism um, and also Buddhist modernism and especially Buddhist feminism. So my interests definitely have have developed and grown, um, but I would say my heart is still in South Asia.
0: That's fascinating. I'm actually really interested to learn that you had this in early interest in midwifery and medicine, because I think that comes out very clearly in the book uh, and what is one of the most fascinating elements of your work. So actually, that that's a good pivot to the book itself. Uh, I wonder if I can ask what drew you to the descent of the embryo scripture, the Garbhavakranti
1: Sutra. Could you give us
0: some background on the text and why you became interested?
1: Yeah, sure. So another pretty convoluted story, of course. Um, So it actually came out of uh, a text that we read at Columbia again that I read with Bob in our Tibetan reading class and which was all graduate students. And Bob used to select a text each semester that he thought one or the other of us would be interested in. And when it sort of came to be my turn, he selected a text, um, a Tibetan text by Desi Sangye Gyatso called the Baidurya Limbo, uh, which is actually his, it's a medical commentary on the Shi, which is the main, you know, medical text of Tibet. And in particular, of course, he selected the embryology chapter. He knew I was interested in, uh, he knew I was interested in gender. He knew I was interested in medicine and he knew I'd done this work on midwifery. So he selected that chapter and. Yeah, of course, it's it's fascinating. It's weird. There's a lot of um, medical detail, um, the stages of embryological growth, um, how to change the embryo from a girl to a boy, a lot of the same stuff, actually, that's in my text. Um, and anyway, as I was looking at, as we were reading this text, I noticed that uh, Desusange Gyatso referenced or referred to this other texts, the sutra text, which was the Garbhavakranti Sutra, that's the Sanskrit reconstruction of the name, um, a lot, right? He really relied on that text. And so when it came to selecting a dissertation topic, I I remembered that and I went looking for it. And I really, again, I wanted something that was Indian, not Tibetan. Um, and so so I went back to it and uh, looked up that sutra and read it and uh, the more I read it, the more interesting it became to me. And I also, also realized that the more I read it, I realized that it really wasn't a medical text per se, although it kind of used this medical idiom, right. But really it was a text about gender and suffering and freedom and about some really core issues in, uh, Indian Buddhism. Um, so yeah, so, so it ended up being a, a really rich text to work on. Right,
0: uh, it's certainly fascinating in the book, and one thing I wanted to raise was actually, in your introduction, you start with the contemporary period, um and you start by talking about the positive changes in the situation of Buddhist women and so I wanted to you know you did you open that way? I wanted to ask, as we uh f- look at the how this sutra in its sort of South Asian context, how did your thinking about the Buddhist present shape what you were doing with the text?
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. Uh, Not in any direct way, uh, but you're absolutely right. The contemporary nuns movement is, is really in the background of this project. Um, I think the connection for me, it's really more of a kind of theoretical methodological connection. So, as I talk about it, the first pages, just the very first couple of pages of the introduction, that if you spend time, uh, for instance, at uh, Sakyadita conferences, so that's an international women's organization that meet their conferences every couple of years. And you get to know a lot of uh, monastic women from all over the Buddhist world. And it becomes very clear that what women want for themselves is uh, different in different contexts. And that although some are really identified, they don't identify themselves as feminists. Others really don't. And they use a very different language for what they want, what their goals are, how they think about themselves. And it really made me think very carefully about uh, what freedom looks like for those women. Right. And I don't think it's the kind of liberation that Betty Friedan was talking about or Kate Millett right or or even someone like Judith Butler but i think you know Judith Butler comes a little closer um, so i was just really interested in um, th- those those experiences made me think a lot about what how how a kind of secular liberal feminist set of assumptions might really lead us astray when we're looking at all kinds of different contexts, but definitely the pre-modern context. Um, So in the book, I was really interested in critically examining that lens, that liberal, secular, feminist lens, and especially in Buddhist studies. So I think in some ways, uh, um, I think in some ways we hadn't as, as Buddhism scholars hadn't examined that question as carefully as maybe we could. So I was interested in kind of making an intervention there, um, you know, asking, not asking the question of whether ancient or medieval Buddhism is, is for or against women, whether it's good for them or bad for them, whether it's inclusive, whether it's misogynist, but really asking the much more basic question, which is uh, what is a woman in pre-modern Indian Buddhism? What does it mean to be female? Um, and how might that have impacted Buddhist women or Buddhist identity or Buddhist asceticism. So kind of just getting down to um, those deeper questions that I think you have to answer before you can ask, you know, other questions about freedom, about equality and so forth.
0: I think that that. Uh I thought that there was a really useful way of framing it to ask the questions of how we should be thinking about what the role of women is and how the way we're thinking about it today might shape that in ways that aren't productive for looking at these pre-modern texts. Um, so in sort of contrasting sort of those Western notions and those non-Western or South Asian uh, notions, I noticed that in your first chapter, you start by talking about different kinds of metaphors for birth. Um, And I wonder if you might say something about that and how these different metaphors contrast or how they do different work.
1: Yeah. So, okay. So in the first chapter, I was trying to figure out a way to get this point across that I kind of felt in my bones, sort of, you know, it was I really had the strong idea about it, but I was struggling to find a way to express it, which is this idea that, yeah, these a lot of Buddhist, a lot of Indian Buddhist texts reference birth and they'll and they mention that birth is a form of suffering. But that in my view, I came to see it as a much deeper idea, and it's actually a really foundational idea, a foundational um, concept that structured a lot of other ideas in Indian Buddhism and of course some of this is coming out of my text which is this kind of flamboyant, lengthy description of the birth process but I really came to see my text as really being a kind of you know particularly lush full treatment of what's a absolutely central theme in Indian Buddhism, which is the idea that birth is suffering um, and obviously that, idea has a big impact, impact on gender, on how women are conceptualized, on what kinds of freedoms might be available to them, et cetera. So I was trying to figure out a way to say this without just saying it over and over again. And I came ac- across uh, this book by Lacoff and Johnson, which is kind of a famous philosophy book um, called The Metaphors We Live By. And it talks about the idea of metaphor in this way that I found so helpful. So they talk about metaphor as being um, not uh, a figure of speech, but really a, a kind of a logic, a way of thinking. So the idea is that when we use metaphor, it structures our conceptualization of an experience. It kind of guides our experience itself, the kinds of emotions that come up. Uh, and so it's very, uh, productive, right. And it's, uh, um, uh, it, it very deeply, that's a very deep connection between the metaphor and our understanding and experience. So it's a, it's, it's constructive. So, um, so this idea seemed to really fit. So, so just as an example of what they're talking about, they, they use the example of, um, a metaphor that argument is war so argument is like war and the way they talk about it is that yeah we all know that arguments are not actually wars you know no one's actually um, <clears throat> sling, you know slinging bullets or whatever but we tend to go about arguing in a way that is uh warlike and we often will have some of the same emotions right our kind of our um, our color rises and our voice gets louder and we maybe feel aggressive. Uh, so there's a way in which that metaphor is really structuring of that experience. So I thought that this was a really good way to think about the relationship between birth and suffering in this tradition, that it's a kind of foundational structuring metaphor that, um, It's not so much that birth is an example of suffering, but rather that in these texts, and I argue that in Indian Buddhism in general, suffering is really actually conceptualized in terms of the birth process. And by that, I don't mean birth in this kind of broad metaphysical sense of of, um, phenomena arising in the world, but I actually mean birth from the body of a woman. And that again and again, in this tradition, suffering will be referenced that way, understood that way, described in those terms. Yeah. So that was, that was sort of chapter one of the book.
0: Right. And I thought it was interesting that you contrasted this with, you know, so this uh, this idea that birth is suffering with the, what you talk about is the Western idea um, that birth is creation. Um, And I don't know if you would want to say a little bit more about the contrast that you see between these two.
1: Yeah, right. So, I mean, I think that that is a more intuitive and a more common way that birth is used as a metaphor, right? And I, I, I um, talked about that in the Vedic tradition, right? So that creation stories in the Vedic tradition sometimes uh, use the metaphor of of sexual reproduction, right, and birth to uh, to describe the creation of the world and that's a kind of more intuitive i think much more common way that uh birth is used as a metaphor in religious context but in the buddhist context it actually isn't used in that way birth is used as not as a metaphor for creation of the world but as a metaphor for suffering uh, and suffering itself is kind of closely connected to the arising of phenomena and the creation of the world. So uh, there's a kind of middle step there, right? Suffering kind of gets inserted.
0: So you proceed from that uh, to talk about, um, in the second chapter, uh, positioning the descent of the embryo scripture within Avadana literature. Um, Could you explain that
1: connection for us? Yeah, so it actually is a, a... text historical connection partly because um, the Garbha of Akranti Sutra is it's located in a bunch of different places actually uh, in the collections of texts that we have, but one of the places that it's located is in the Mular Savastivada Vinaya. And it's it's an interpolation, it's sort of stuck in there. It's not really integrated in any real way with the legal texts that are in there. Um, and so, and it it is um, the embryological section of the text, which describes birth is actually nested within uh, a story. And the story is about Nanda, who is the Buddha's half brother or cousin brother, who is in love with his wife Sundari. Uh, He's sort of fabulously handsome and has everything going for him. He's rich. Um, He's, you know, got this great marriage and he is not that interested in ordaining to become a monk. And so the story is all about how it's a, it's a very well-known story the story. And it's all about how the Buddha kind of persuades him to become a monk. And in my text, the final kind of step in that process is that the buddha teaches nanda the garba of Akranti sutra so that's the teaching that he gives him at the final stage of finally convincing this really recalcitrant person that it's better to enter the monastic life so i mean and i also argue in that chapter that the so so obviously the nanda text itself is a, is an avadana right it's a it's a story uh, about, about virtue. Um, I also argue that the Garba of Akranti itself is a kind of epic. It's a sort of fetal epic. It tells a, a kind of dramatic story uh, about, uh, you know, good and bad actions and the outcomes. So it really actually could be considered to be an avadana in a sense. Um, so, so in terms of content, the Garbha Avakranti, both both kind of sections, both pieces of it, the Nanda frame story and then the embryological text itself, are kind of Avadana-like. So I talk about that. Um, but there, also the Mulasarvastivada Vinaya is, as a large collection, very closely connected text historically to the Avadana literature. So a lot of the Avadanas um, that are pruned and put in collections like the, the Avadana and so forth. Um, are also found in the Molar Savassi Vodavineia. So there's definitely a kind of just a genre connection there as well.
0: So I love the term uh, fetal epic. Uh, so you position it in that context, but you also talk in this chapter about embryologies. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about how the descent of the embryo scripture differs from other ca- accounts of the growth of the embryo uh, in this South Asian context.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to compare it. So the, the most obvious comparison or, or difference, I would say, is that the Garbhavakranti is really the only embryological text which tells the story of embryological development week by week. So there are other stories, there are other accounts of that process which are either not kind of divided up um, into uh, chunks of time, right, or tell the story month by month, which is what the Ayurvedic texts do. So it's different in that sense. It's just, it stands out, right? It's obviously a different tradition. It's not just taking, for instance, the medical classics from India and kind of and kind of transposing them into a Buddhist context. It's it's quite a different tradition in that sense. Um, it also, though, and it has a lot more detail, but it also uh is different in the sense that especially if you compare it to the Ayurvedic accounts of the growth of the fetus in the womb, those accounts are much more concerned with the experience of the mother and with her state of health and how that can be promoted. And there's a much stronger sense of the connection between the fetus and the mother. So you have this idea of two heartedness, it's called, right? That, uh, the mother and the fetus are connected by all, all of these channels and the nutrients are going back and forth, but also all kinds of emotions and mental states are kind of communicated in these, in the sort of interconnecting channels. And so there's this tradition and the medical text talks about it, that you really must satisfy the cravings, the whims, you have to keep pregnant women happy in order to keep the fetus healthy. And 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 there's a sense kind of that they're in it together, whereas in the um, in the the fetus is on his own and the mother is very much the antagonist. <laughs> so it's a kind of pitched battle. Uh, mainly the aggression goes one direction from the mother to the fetus. Uh, so there's a, there are descriptions of, uh, the things that the mother does, very ordinary things, just things that she eats or just, she lies down, she sits, she stands, she runs, uh, very, you know, unavoidable parts of daily life that, that torture the fetus. They have the, the, the very painful effect on the fetus. Uh, and there's absolutely no sense of this kind of back and forth connection, And there's also very little attention paid in the text to the health of the mother. So that's just simply off the table. That's really not something the text concerns itself with. Um, It's, you know, it's really not even, it's mentioned maybe once there's a very brief reference to, oh yeah, and if the child dies and has to be cut out of the mother, it's painful for the mother too. Uh, But that's pretty much the only reference to maternal suffering. It's all about the fetus suffering.
0: Right. I'm wondering, you, you noted that this is a really detailed text. Is there one detail that you thought that kind of jumped out at you when you were reading this that you thought, oh, you know, this is something that is really striking and really tells us something about how the the un- the embryo is understood in this context?
1: I mean, I think all the details put together do that. Um I mean, one of my favorite images from the text, I'm not sure if this actually uh, does what you were looking for, but there's this image early on, I think it's week. I don't know. It's like week seven or something where the fetus is described as a cluster of bubbles um, or a cluster of pearls. And so it's very early in the embryological development. And then there's another, I think it might be right after that where the fetus is described as being blown up like a balloon uh, So he sort of, you know, the structures are, are kind of formed and then the fetus is kind of blown up. The the karmic winds sort of blow the fetus up and you sort of have this image of this balloon like fetus kind of bumping around the womb. Um, it's just a lot of really wonderful details like that. Uh, a lot of, um, very evocative imagery, uh, speaking of metaphors, right. Uh, it's, it's a um highly metaphorical text a lot of figurative language is brought in to try to get across um what it's like for the fetus and what's happening in the womb
0: right it's a perspective we don't really think about um and you know you you've made the point very clearly in the book that this is a not a pleasant exper- experience for the fetus or for the embryo uh and then in the next chapter in chapter 3 uh, you turn to the aesthetics of disgust, uh, and this was really a fascinating chapter and I wonder if you might explain how this aesthetics of disgust helps us understand uh, both the context of this text and the text itself
1: yeah, so this was one of my favorite chapters to write and one of the ones I'm the most proud of I'm not sure if it's you know merits <laughs> my pride in it, but um so, yeah, so one of the, so obviously, yes, there's a lot of disgust language in the text. There's a lot of talk of fetal, of, of the impurities of the female body. It's very lush language, lots of kind of oozing fluids and pus filled. This isn't that. Um, and, uh, like I said, uh, there's a very rich use of language in the text. It's not a kind of dry description. So one of the uh, this really got my attention. And anyone who's looked at um, kind of parallel passages in other Buddhist texts about the female body knows what I'm talking about. That it's a kind of poetry, you know. It sort of can get so over the top. And so I, I got really interested in this sort of why, you know. It's one thing to make the point that the fetus is suffering for whatever reason you're making that point and that, you know, the womb is not a nice place to be, but to kind of lovingly dwell on it um, for line after line after line, and then to do it again, right. In the next, you know, in the next folio and then to do it again and to do it five times in a row, there's just a, it's, it's just, it's very, it gets your attention. So I started thinking about, um, discussed as a kind of aesthetic trope as something so it became clear to me that this was a kind of aesthetic use of language it wasn't merely philosophical didactic right it wasn't therefore you know be a good monk right or something that it was there was really something being evoked a kind of aesthetic response from the auditor or the reader um, so, I started looking around at what other people have said about disgust in South Asia, but also in general, and I found this sort of treasure trove of disgust theory it's that it's so fascinating to read uh both from the um, you know from the west from kind of euro american theory um, and then also really fascinating things said about the disgust, the bibatsa rasa, right, the the mood of disgust um, in the Sanskrit uh, poetic tradition. And when I looked into this, I realized that there is something to be said about this, these disgust tropes, that there is a way to read it in which you really give due credit or due respect to the fact that these texts are trying to get a reaction out of us. You know, I call it a vomitive response, right? They're trying to get a rise out of us literally. And that this is not something with that. This actually is part of a kind of aestheticized experience, which I think um, uh, has a role in refining the mind kind of, I use the word softening kind of softening the mind, Uh, So that it's more ready to receive, um, you know, hard lessons about the true nature of the world. Um, Yeah, so that's what I attempt to do in chapter three. And of course, it has a lot to do with with gender, too, because there are different discussed uh, tropes in Buddhism. So there's discussed language associated with eating right? And the digestive processes, there's disgust language uh, connected to the rotting cadavers, right? Death and, the, and corpses. Um, there are, there's disgust language associated with the sexualized female body. And then, you know, the text that I looked at, the of Kranti Sutra is a clear example of disgust language for the mother, for the maternal, the reproductive body. Yeah,
0: so that mother is you know, the key figure um, for, or one of the key figures for the text, and then in the in the next chapter, in chapter four, you title it the Inauspicious Mother, uh, which of course you know, jumped out at me because we don't obviously think of mothers usually as inauspicious, right? That this is. This is a moment, you know, as someone's becoming a mother uh, of sort of great joy and delight. So to have that sort of pegged with inauspiciousness um, immediately attracted my attention. And I would like to hear you explain how the figure of the mother is portrayed as inauspicious in the Buddhist context.
1: This chapter, I think, is in some ways kind of the core of the of the whole book. It's certainly, the longest chapter, um, and so yes. Yeah, so in traditional South Asia, the mother is certainly not inauspicious. In fact, she's the embodiment of everything auspicious. So auspiciousness, and I had to do some kind of I don't know what to call it. I had to do some real work to come up with a kind of cogent description of what I, definition of what I meant by auspiciousness in the South Asian context, because there actually hasn't been a lot of work done on this in the pre-modern context. There's been a lot of work done on it, but it's all by kind of anthropology in the 20th century, basically. Um, So I did very carefully use that work as a way to understand the pre-modern context, but tried to make it clear that I wasn't simply willy nilly projecting backwards. I think, I think many of what these anthropologists are saying about auspiciousness in, you know, modern or contemporary South Asia also applies. So what they say basically is that auspiciousness is associated with, especially with, with a lot of things, but um, in terms of women, it's associated with youth, with fertility, with sexuality and with beauty, but also that it's cyclical, right? So, um, It's, it's changeable. And so for instance, women get old, right? Women go through menopause. They're no longer fertile. Um, Women cycle in and out of auspiciousness. And so it's not something that defines every woman at every moment of her life. Um, So anyway, but so birth is definitely something which in, in traditional South Asian ritual, context is associated with birth most of the time so birth is sort of it's impure so there's a lot of impurity associated with with birth but it is auspicious in the sense that it is uh the creation of no of new life and it's it's associated with fertility with um um with sexuality so it's definitely kind of coded auspicious In in uh, and in a lot of Buddhist contexts as well, and I talk about um, some of the images that from the classical period where there's, you know, that some of the images of kind of fertile, beautiful lakshis, uh, yakshis um, on, you know, Buddhist sites who are definitely kind of the embodiment of auspiciousness. So you see this kind of idea also in Buddhist context, and you also see it in Buddhist literature, um, but you also see this other thing, which I started to really think about when I was reading the Garbhavakranti Sutra. Um and the Garbhavakranti Sutra, what it does is because it talks about birth in this particular kind of way, as an experience of torture, as a very dangerous thing, as something which is um disgusting and impure and uh incredibly violent and painful, right? there's a kind of telescoping of birth and death in the Garbha Sutra. And it seems very, it seemed very obvious to me in reading this, the Sutra that birth was being taken out of the category of the auspicious. Right. So it was still impure, but now it was inauspicious and impure. And, you know, of course it goes along with this idea of birth as being kind of the metaphor for suffering. So, you know, I, I've, that didn't, you know, that's not all that dis- surprising considering the nature of the text. But the thing that is really interesting is if you look at uh, hagiographies, if you look at stories and uh, narratives of the Buddha's birth, it turns out, or at least in my reading, that in those texts as well, birth is not auspicious. So the, even the, the kind of exemplary, um, perfect birth of the Buddha, it it also is kind of taken out of the ca- category of auspiciousness it's not inauspicious but it's not auspicious and i and i so i i read those texts very closely and the kinds of things that i notice that which lead me to say that are for instance um there's no kind of interchange between maya and and the bodhisattva right so he's in the womb but in these texts uh he's not really dependent on her so she is not providing nourishment Um, he is kind of dwelling there without really uh, being affected by her in a sense. Um, It's very punctual, right? So he's conceived at this particular time and then he's born exactly 10 months later. Uh, So there's no, there's none of the kind of unpredictability and cyclicality of auspiciousness. And then also um, the sexuality is really in question here. So, um, in many of the accounts of the Buddha's birth, it's a, there's no, um, sexual contact between his parents at his conception. And either that's made very clear or it's a bit vague. Um, but there is a kind of effort to desexualize, right? Um, so in many ways, I think the birth of the, Buddha, that, that really kind of iconic story of the good birth, right, the desirable one, the one that is the exemplar, it is not auspicious. Uh, it's not, it's pure, but it's not auspicious. Um, so there's a lot of implications of this. The main one is that If women are either inauspicious or in the best of all possible circumstances, neither auspicious nor inauspicious, for instance, in the case of Maya, right? And obviously she's way exceptional. Um, If if that's the case, then there is no value in that role in a sense. There's a way in which it gives another option to women and men, but especially to women, right, to imagine other kinds of lives, which are other kinds of ways of being feminine, which are not defined by this really sort of central, coveted, cherished quality of auspiciousness. So that's kind of what the chapter tries to tries to say.
0: Right, and I thought the your reading of the birth of the Buddha was really effective in this context. Um, and I liked also the way in which you talk about how these you know, images of fertility also show up in monastic contexts, um, which is something that you turn to in chapter five. Uh, how then these tales of monks or uh, ascetics? negotiated rituals and practices around fertility. So I wonder if you could expand on that.
1: Yeah, so um so one of the implications of the Buddhist discourse of birth which I'm describing is that because birth is so important for understanding suffering and because there's so much written about birth And again, I'm not talking about sort of the abstract arising of phenomena, but I'm talking about actual birth from the body of a woman. Um, Ironically, uh, monks end up knowing quite a bit about it. And they also part, you know, because part of the way that the enlightened state is defined in this context is that it's defined as having mastery over the birth process, right? Ultimately being able to avoid it altogether. That means that, uh, beings who are on the path to enlightenment who have made some progress are perceived as having some control over the birth process. And ironically, what that amounts to is they, uh, well, yeah, they can perhaps, um, put a stop to it for themselves. Perhaps it also means that they can, help someone else kind of get it going. Right. So, um, and that kind of possibility is borne out in narrative traditions in, um, in Indian Buddhist texts. So for instance, you have stories about, um, about, uh, sort of prenatal ordination of children. Uh, so, I call them child pledging stories, right? So, uh, infertile couples who will invite a monk, uh, usually a sort of famous monk, right, to come to their home and they pledge their child, they pledge any child that might be born to them to be the monastic attendant of that monk. So, they basically say, you know, please help us conceive a child. And if you're, If a child is born to us, we will at a certain age, and it's usually seven years of age, we will give this child to you to join the monastery to become um, a novice monk and to be your monastic attendant. And so there's this, you know, there's this kind of real irony that these Buddhist adepts who are uh, described as being celibate and they're, um, you know, have nothing to do with all this kind of nasty household business of childbearing are being asked to interfere in the process. Um, So, and there's a bunch of other examples of similar kinds of um, interpenetration, shall we say, of um, fertility practices and monastic contexts. And so that's, so that's what chapter five is about. And the, the point that I also make uh, it's, it's, it's partly sort of documenting, uh, the, that phenomena, but it's also another point that I make that's, a uh, um, pretty, pretty important is that the, the narrative descriptions of these practices of these interactions, these lay monastic interactions to me, to my ear, they make it pretty clear that there's a kind of shrugging off of this association. They're also the, the monks are, are, Make wry comments, right? Or they kind of say denigrating things about um, the whole process and they kind of make it clear that they would rather not be involved. So there, it's this kind of, I don't know, on the one hand, you know, participating in something which is probably, was probably quite um, useful to monastic communities in terms of lay support and so forth. But, you know, at the same time, Um, kind of putting a spin on it, right? That, well, we shouldn't really be doing this and we don't want to really be doing this. Um, And we kind of wish these lay people would stop asking us to do this. So, yeah, it's
0: very interesting the way that they have to negotiate these kind of outside demands with what they see their role as being. Uh, And then in Chapter 6, you... In some ways, those issues are taken up when you turn to talk about female monastics uh, and Buddhist nuns, uh, that these this kind of competing demands of you know maybe a secular notion of what women were and then a Buddhist notion of what women were. So could you talk about how you see the identity of these uh, female monastics as shaped by the discourse around uh, female bodies and birth?
1: This was... Uh, um a concern of this chapter and actually is a concern of research that I'm heading towards uh, now after finishing the book so in yeah in this chapter, I tried to look at i try to get a better handle on the idea of impurity and impurity language in indian buddhism there's a there's a kind of um scholarly trope that uh, Buddhists weren't really Concerned about purity, and that what it seems like they're talking about purity, really they're they're just kind of being infected by sort of brahmanic norms. And I always was pretty questioning of that because it seemed pretty obvious to me, clear to me that uh, um, in Indian Buddhist texts you could see a kind of real commitment to the language of purity. So I was really interested in figuring out um, what the logic of that is. Right? What did Indian Buddhists? How did they use the language of, of purity and purity? Um, And obviously, it comes up a lot around um, menstruation and reproduction in women's bodies. Um, So I looked, I used Mary Douglas, actually, kind of classic theory of purity and pollution to connect uh, different types of purity talk that um, I noticed in Indian Buddhist sources to different social environments. And without going into the details, basically, um, kind of Vedic Hindu context which would be applicable to a lot of probably lay Buddhists right who would be still kind of still kind of conversant with um, with those types of ritual traditions um, you have a type of purity talk in which uh, the impurity of women is at the same time considered to be uh, very ritually powerful so it's kind of ambivalent and then you have the garbha of Akranti Sutra um, is, is part of this this type of purity talk, um, which is extremely fierce, extremely negative, which uh, really sort of abominates impurity, female impurity, and obviously connected to an environment, a kind of ascetic environment in which women are completely excluded. So the Brahmin context, women are, are kind of incorporated. They're very important to that social context, but they have to be policed. But in the um, ascetic context, Buddhist ascetic context, women are uh, completely, um, you know, excluded and um, purity associated with um, the female body is or impurity associated with the female body is sort of abominated. And the Garbhava Kranti Sutra is a very clear example of that. But then I went and I looked at um, menstrual texts in Buddhist Vinaya. And so I looked to see what Buddhist Vinayas has to say about menstruation. So, um, you know, menstrual texts, the Brahmin legal tradition is what a really good place to learn about pu- purity and impurity in that tradition. So I thought, well, let's look in the Buddhist legal tradition. And it was really, really interesting because what I found is that those texts about which which manage uh, which are there to manage uh, f- menstruation are in, you know, in nuns communities are actually really matter of fact. They're very, you know, I, I, I describe them as sort of what's your middle school health teacher, you know, how, ha- how she, she, or he talked to you about menstruation. Like they're very, they're like, you use this kind of cloth and this is when you do it. And, you know, um, I mean, I'm kind of exaggerating, but basically they have a very different tone than these other impure texts, which are about female impurity. And, um, so what I got from that is that this is really a social environment in which, uh, no one was really that invested in, in policing women, uh, using these, uh, this kind of language or these practices around impurity that in a, in a sense, the women were kind of on their own. They were kind of, you know, um, um, establishing practices, uh, according to their own lights, according to what they knew, according to what worked. Um, and I found that really fascinating and really kind of unusual. Like you don't really see dis- religious discussions of female blood that aren't sort of heavily symbolic, right. And really emotional. So, um, that, made me really made me think about monastic environments for women in pre-modern India and how much women might've had some agency and how much they might've had some control over it. Um, so you asked me actually about how, how these women had to negotiate right with the kind of broader social environment. And that's the, that's, that's the way in which the menstrual rules are complicated because, the menstrual rules are, it makes, you know, the the lawyers were very clear that women had to not offend the lay people. And so to the extent that there are kind of restrictions on women, like you can't go wash your menstrual cloths in the common um, bathing area, you know, or washing area with everybody else. Um, So those kinds of rules are there. So the, to the extent that there are kind of restrictions on women around menstruation, it has to do Only with that, only with what the lay people, with what people outside the community will think, right, about not offending those people. But it's not a kind of internal kind of heavy symbolic language about how terrible female blood is. That's just kind of not there.
0: So, Amy, I want to take what you've discussed in this chapter six. Uh, and ask you if you can tie this back to chapter four, where you talked about the inauspicious mother and how this opened up a different kind of space for women.
1: That's really important, actually, that connection. So, the overall, the kind of overarching argument of the book, you know, the title of the book is The Suffering Fetus and Female Freedom. Um, or the subtitle, I should say. Uh, so all of this, in my mind, has something to do with female freedom. You would think that uh, looking at a text which has so many terrible things uh, to say about the female body would have nothing to do with female freedom. Uh, but what I came to really think and really deeply looking into the the context of this text, um, the environment of it, is that actually what this text is doing is, so it's, it's taking birth out of the realm of auspiciousness, right? It's saying that it's never auspicious. It's inauspicious, or at best, neither auspicious nor inauspicious. Uh, it's saying that women are never cycling through purity. They're always impure, no matter what. Um, and then, you know, if you think back to chapter three, which is about the aesthetics of disgust, uh, there's this idea that even the most nubile, young, beautiful, sexy woman is actually disgusting. I think taken all together, what we have here is we have this kind of systematic deconstruction of what were very, very pervasive, important ideas about what it is to be a woman in pre-modern India. So what is it to be a woman? Well, a woman is auspicious, Right? she participates in the miraculous creation of babies. Um, a woman is sexualized and beautiful, at least when she's young, right? She's desirable as a sexual object. Um, and finally, she is someone who by nature cycles through purity and impurity. That's so kind of um, a, such a, a key idea of uh, what it is to be a woman in that, in that context. And in the, but in the Buddhist context, um, you know, especially through the lens of this metaphor of birth, all of that gets kind of picked apart, deconstructed. Um, So you'd think again, like, oh, well, that's great. So, you know, women, what do they have left? Well, that's sort of my point is that instead of these very, very kind of heavy uh, moral symbolic ideas about what it is to be a woman, right? The female embodiment, what it means. Instead, what you have is this kind of blank, not blank, but this kind of empty space, uh, kind of capacious new space, moral psychological space that monastic women uh, could potentially use to define their femaleness in some other way, not in this way that they had been surrounded by and, you know, frankly, are still surrounded by, but at least within the four walls of the nunnery, right, within the kind of discursive space of of Buddhism, they could define femaleness differently.
0: I think you did this really effectively in the book, and I really enjoyed reading it. And I'm really appreciative of all the time you've taken to talk uh, about this book with us. So I wanted to ask one final question, and that's to pivot to what you're doing next. I'm wondering if you could spend a few moments telling us what your new project is and if there are any themes that you're picking up from this book
1: and carrying forward. Yes, there are in fact. Uh, Yeah. So I have a couple new projects which are all interconnected with each other. And then also very much connected to the birth and Buddhism project. Um, One of them is I got very interested in Vinaya literature uh, while doing uh, the the birth and Buddhism project. And in particular, I got interested in this in a in one bhikshuni vinaya that's written in a form of Buddhist Sanskrit. And uh, it's not all that well known, um, but it's amazing text because it's a kind of complete standalone bhikshuni vinaya um, in an Indic language. So I don't know if P, if listeners may may or may not know this, but Vinaya is an incredibly rich literature. It's really humorous, full of stories. And it also contains this kind of fascinating legal argumentation, uh, which seems to reveal so much about uh, the kind of deep logic of these communities, right? Um, So that text is very near and dear to me, and I'm really interested in, uh, it's a translation project. It's also a kind of, Analysis project, um, and I'm particularly interested in looking at the issues of agency. So, I'm interested in in looking at this text as a way to think about whether or not um, there's some kind of female aesthetic agency that is detectable there. Um, and I think I think actually the answer is yes. Um, so, so that's one project. Um, Another project which is linked to the textual project is, uh, actually an ethnographic project, which is a completely new methodology for me. So, but it does connect back to where we started, which is kind of, um, paying attention to contemporary nuns movement. So, uh, yeah, I'm really interested in what sorts of lives Buddhist monastic w- women live, um, how they think about them, um, what kinds of forms of freedom are available to girls and women through monastic institutions that they can't locate elsewhere. And so I've identified a a couple of communities and started to learn about them. And and these are actually small communities. They're kind of, I don't know, what's the right word? I mean, they're kind of on the fringe of things. They're not, you know, big uh, nuns communities that are attached to a really big monastery. Um, so, uh, one of them is actually in Limbani, Nepal, and it's, um, uh, the women, the girls there are, um, they don't shave their heads. They wear robes. They don't shave their heads and, um, they're all high school age or younger and they live together as a monastic community and the function of the community among other things is to kind of give them moral cover so they can continue to go to high school because otherwise their families would, would probably pull them out because, you know, because there are worries about their virtue and being out in the world in that way. Um, so that's just one example. So that's a kind of linked project. um, and I'm picturing, I think both of those, both of those, uh, focuses in one book probably about female Buddhist ascetic agency and freedom, sort of past and present. Yeah, that sounds like
0: two great projects, and I really look forward to reading what comes out of it. I want to thank you for being on the show today, for taking time to speak with us, and I really enjoyed
1: talking to you. I really enjoyed it too. Thank you so much for inviting me. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to New Books in Buddhist Studies. We've been talking with Amy Paris Langenberg about her book, Birth in Buddhism, The Suffering Fetus and Female Freedom. And you can find a link on our website. Until next time, goodbye.